I want to say hi to everybody in Oklahoma City, hi to everybody in Edmond, everybody that is engaging online, everybody that is at the Children's Center, uh, to our brothers and sisters who are watching in incarceration. We are so honored to worship and learn together. And I'm really, really grateful to be here. Uh, this last week marked the beginning of Lent. That's a period of 40 days before Easter where Christians historically have reflected on their lives and engaged in practices like fasting, like prayer, like generosity, the old language for it was almsgiving, to get ready for uh, remembering the crucifixion on Good Friday and then uh, the resurrection on Easter. It began this last week with what's called Ash Wednesday. Ashes in the Bible, in the ancient world, generally were a symbol of both mortality and also repentance. And on Ash Wednesday, people will have the sign of the cross marked on their forehead in ashes. And then they hear the words, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Remember, you are dust. To dust you will return. And for a lot of people, it feels like kind of a downer, uh, especially after two years of COVID and fear and division. In the church attendance world, sometimes people are what are called CEO Christians, uh, Christmas and Easter only. Um, <laughs> Nobody is an Ash Wednesday only churchgoer. Um, however, for most of human history, taking time to reflect on mortality and the reality of death was actually valued as an act of wisdom. Not just by Christians, folks like the Stoics and others did it as well, not just by adults. Children were encouraged to engage in it. When I was growing up, Kids still used to say a little prayer. Nobody listening to me now will be old enough to remember it, but I do. It started like this. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to... That's kind of sobering for a little kid, isn't it? There's actually a second verse to that prayer. A lot of people don't know about this, but I'm not making this up. It's in the New England primer. Now imagine praying these words with a little seven-year-old child. Our days begin with trouble here. Our life is but a span. And cruel death is always near. So frail a thing is man. Good night, honey. Pleasant dreams. People do that with little children. Why? Well, they assumed that there was wisdom in reflecting on the fact that our life's pretty short. And we've got to think about what goes beyond. We don't pray that prayer with little children very much these days. It just seems too dark. There was a haunting article in the New York Times last week called The Meaning of Lent for an Unchurched Christian, where the author, Margaret Renkel, writes about how after a pandemic, and disillusionment with the church, stuff that's going on a lot among folks in our country these days. Unlike her more traditional parents, she's not sure what to do with the season. What is Lent about? What does it mean? She writes, during their midlife years of creeping weight gain, my mother and father would announce that they were losing 10 pounds for Lent, a goal which I always found hilarious. I am no theologian, but I'm pretty sure Jesus did not spend 40 days and 40 nights in the desert so he could fit into his old jeans. It's just a funny thought to me. It's Jesus saying, hey, Peter, I'm trying to pick an outfit for the Sermon on the Mount. Does this robe make me look too hippie? He's like, Jesus didn't get worried about those kind of things. But we're kind of confused about Lent, kind of confused about 
how we should marshal our thoughts. Generally, we want messages that tell us that our abilities are remarkable, our lives are amazing, our circumstances are going to get better, and our determination will most certainly prevail. And I just need to tell you up front, this is not that message. So if your life is going great, if your marriage is effort-free, if they just keep promoting you at work, if Harvard is begging for your kids to apply, if your cat is grateful and appreciative, if strangers tell you you should be in an infomercial for how to get great abs, if you have no plans to die, this message is not for you. But for the rest of us who live in a world where our family gets shattered, where our marriage crumbles, where a diagnosis comes and it seems to be beyond all human hope, where there is betrayal at work or in a friendship, in a relationship that sucks the breath out of you that you cannot understand, or you can hardly stand to see one more story of destruction and violence and evil in Ukraine. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. I want to invite you to join me in the fellowship of the withered hand. I was first introduced to it 35 years ago. Another young pastor I didn't know, his name was Paul, and I had been invited to speak for two days to a small group of pastors in Ethiopia. Now at this time, Ethiopia was a Marxist country. It was under the dictatorship of Colonel Mengistu, who is later found guilty of genocide uh, of up to two million people, including the head of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. So churches did not meet like this in those days in Ethiopia. They met underground. They met in houses. We would gather with people sometimes where they would draw the curtains out of fear. Church leaders were often imprisoned. We were told, this is so interesting in the church, that they called the prison the university because they said that's where God seemed to send their leaders where they learned and grew the most. When they would go to prison, they would say, they're at the university. So in the two days in particular, when the primary meetings were held, they had an intensity that was unfamiliar to me. Paul and I took turns speaking in sessions that would last 90 minutes, and it went from early morning until bedtime, and they didn't want to stop in a cramped, crowded, sweaty room, and they would just ask, teach us more, teach us more. Paul spoke in the final session of those two days where these people were able to gather for fellowship in a way that they didn't know when or if they would be able to do again. And he told a story that's actually told three times in the New Testament because apparently it was regarded as very important about a man in a synagogue who had a withered hand. And Paul's primary point was about the man's weakness and inadequacy and shame. We're not told in the story whether the man was born this way or had an accident. One ancient commentary says he was a mason, so he couldn't practice his trade. Maybe. In, in the Lucan version, Luke chapter 6, we're told that it was his right hand. In the ancient world, most people are right-handed. The right hand was regarded as the hand of agency, the hand that makes work possible. So possibly he was a beggar. Possibly no woman would marry him. He was attending synagogue, so he was likely a person of faith. And so he would know the stories in the Old Testament. There's one in 1 Kings about a man who had a shriveled, useless hand, and it was healed. And he had most likely prayed, like we do, for healing. 
but nothing ever happened. You know, most people in the New Testament that receive a healing ask Jesus for it. A leper asks him, or a man that's got an epileptic son asks him, or a blind guy named Bartimaeus on the side of the road yells for Jesus' help so loudly that they all stop him. The man with the withered hand never asks. And we don't know why. Maybe he was shy. Maybe he was polite. Maybe he had doubts. Maybe he didn't know. Deformity in the ancient world often came with a stigma even more than it does in our world. Maybe he would have thought God was punishing him. So I imagine him sitting there in that service, uh, hiding his shriveled hand in his robe. Because it was his shame. It's the last thing he would want anybody to notice. No polite person would call attention to it, but somebody did, and that somebody was Jesus. Uh, It's especially startling in Luke chapter six, verse eight, Jesus points out this man and says, get up and stand in front of everyone. That's Jesus' statement. Not just get up, not even just get up and stand, get up and stand in front of everyone. In other words, expose your shame. Reveal the ugliness you try to hide. Jesus deliberately calls on this man to do this. And the man sits for a moment with his lifeless hand twisted inside his sleeve. And then the text says, so he got up and stood there. And we don't know how long. Everybody's staring at this man at his hand. And worse yet, these are the people he most wanted not to be there. Healthy-handed religious people who had strong right hands that they used to greet each other and to do important work and shake their healthy right index fingers at the sinners and the shamed. A church service was the last place he would want to expose his withered hand. And of course, Jesus knew all about this. Jesus understood how, of all things, religion, faith, can sometimes wither people's hearts and make them exclusive, make us judgmental and superior and unloving. And even in this gathering, there were religious leaders, people who thought they knew God really well, who were opposed to Jesus helping this man on this day because it was the Sabbath. And they valued rule keeping. They thought they knew that that was more important than people helping. And one of the versions tells us this made Jesus really mad, really mad. And then he spoke a second time. But now for the man, the second statement made things worse. Jesus said, stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. That was the one thing the man with the withered hand would most want not to do. You don't go to synagogue to expose what you're most ashamed of. Not just that, it was the one thing the man with the withered hand could not do. He tried a million times. Child could do it. He couldn't. His will was somehow not able to make those neurons fire. Jesus drew attention to the man's shame and weakness because, because it was the man's weakness that would become the hinge of his story and the turning point of his life. He was not asked to do what he could. He was asked to do what he couldn't. 
And he must have thought to himself, my whole life has been centered around managing my withered hand, covering it up, keep it hidden. All of this is undone. This is the worst moment of my life. Until it wasn't. So in Ethiopia, over and over again, in that hot, dark, sweaty, crowded, fearful room, Paul kept saying, Jesus asked the man to do the very thing the man could not do. Stretch out your hand. And so it is with us, Paul says. What God asks us to do, what we know we should do, is precisely what we cannot do. It was so interesting to me. Paul did not try to inspire those pastors by praising their strength. He didn't say, you can defy Mengistu. You can overcome a dictator. You can withstand persecution. You can laugh in the face of poverty. You can save a country from ruin. He said, Jesus is asking you to do what you cannot do. Stretch out your hand. And then the strangest thing happened. These leaders began to weep. Just weep. They began to pray. They stood up out of their chairs and began to confess their sins. Like this wasn't planned. They spoke about their fears of the government being arrested. They talked about their jealousies of each other's ministries, families, children. They spoke of their deep inadequacy and the pain of their bickering congregations. And there was healing and reconciliation and hope and courage. And this went on deep into the night and they would not go home. The service was over. Now in California, where I come from, when church is over, people know and they leave. They're often thinking about leaving before the service is even over. Just how do I get to the parking lot and beat the other people? These guys wouldn't leave because we all knew what came into that room was power. We all knew it. But it did not come through giftedness or training or inspiration or planning. As good as those things are, it came in weakness. It came when people felt a need so great that they had nothing to lose anymore and nothing to hide anymore. It came in the honest, gut-wrenching confession of need and shame and ugliness and fear. It came, it came to the fellowship of the withered hand. And Paul and I talked afterwards about how the best things that happened on that trip happened more in spite of us than because of us. We had been asked by the church group that invited us over to bring uh, study materials, these great big study Bibles. This is 35 years ago. No internet, uh, no resources for underground church pastors like this. So there's great big uh, annotated study Bibles. And they asked each of us to bring 25 of them in a suitcase with us. So I asked my church, one person gave me one right as I was leaving. So I had 26 and it didn't occur to me until the plane was landing. These Bibles, of course, were illegal. I was smuggling Bibles into a country, and I had not taken a class on smuggling when I went to seminary and made me kind of nervous. And sure enough, one of the Bible suitcases got confiscated at the airport. And uh, we made it through, but the leader of our group was summoned to go to the airport because they had found this suitcase. And the customs official took him into his office. We were quite afraid about what was going to happen and closed the door and said they had found these illegal materials and said he would release them on one condition. 
And we thought, best case scenario, they're going to ask for a bribe. And sure enough, the customs official did. He said, I will release these on the condition that you allow me to keep one Bible for myself. So the extra Bible that I took over ended up in the hands of the Marxist customs official of a genocidal dictator. Nobody planned that. After a year or so, Paul and I lost touch, but I've never forgotten his message or what happened that night. I've learned a lot more about this fellowship with the withered hand in the last couple of years in my own life. And I was telling this story not long ago to a group of pastors who were meeting with Nancy and I in a little room in the midst of COVID and divisions and a lot of difficulties. And one of them stopped me and said, I know Paul. Paul's been my best friend for many years. And then told me how quite recently there was a gathering and Paul leaned back in his chair. There was a horrific accident and he ended up dying, broke his neck all of a sudden. And it made me so sad that I was not able to thank Paul for what he had given to me or walk with him through what he experienced. It was another chapter of pain in a suffering world where there is so much I don't understand and do not control. I wonder when I think about the story, why did Jesus make that man stand up in front of everybody so deliberate about it? Why didn't he heal him privately offline? Why, why make this man's weakness so transparent? And I think maybe, maybe part of it is that Jesus was wanting to begin a new kind of community where people who are needy and imperfect and in trouble and weak and deformed and ugly and shamed are particularly celebrated. I think maybe it's because shame can be hidden or it can be healed, but it can't be both. So stretch out your hand. There's a weird message to come to church and hear. Years ago, I decided in my own life, I would like to have at least one friend before whom I have no secrets that knows all of the dark stuff and the ugly stuff and the shameful stuff. I'd known my friend for about uh, 10 years, my friend Rick. So I asked him, could we meet together and could I just, would you listen to my confession? James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so you can be healed. And Rick said, yes. So I spent... Uh, a couple of weeks just preparing, reflecting, remembering, writing. And then Rick and I met and I spent about an hour and a half and just walked through with him uh, the stuff that I was most embarrassed about, about my life, my relationships, my marriage, my sexuality, our finances, my jealousies, my ego, lying, and when I was done, I felt so ashamed, I could not stand to look at him. And I mean, this is my good friend from 10 years. And I'll never, ever forget this moment. Rick looked at me and he said, John, I have never loved you more than I love you right now. And it felt so good I wanted to make up more bad stuff just to hear that he loved me no matter what. And I realized in that moment, uh, you can only be loved to the extent that you're known. Like if there's something about me that you don't know and it's dark, I might be able to try to impress you and get you to say that you love me, but inside I will always know 
that there's something you don't know about me and wonder if you knew that, would you still love me? So you can only be loved to the extent that you are known. You can only be fully loved if you are fully known. We have been friends for over 40 years. We call each other now every morning at 6.50 from Monday through Friday. Here's yesterday. Here's my temptations. Here's where I messed up. Here's where I need help. Here's what I'm facing today. Pray for each other. I'm so grateful to have a fully disclosing friend. Maybe in this Lenten season, you would like to ask God to help you find somebody like that be a good thing. Now it takes time. So don't go out of here and walk up to a stranger. Do you want to hear my darkest secret? Uh, You have to go a step at a time, discern their character, trust them a little bit, see, do they keep confidence? And, And so, but I do know that a church cannot be the church when people are hiding. So maybe this is the day, maybe this Lenten season is the season for you to stretch out your hand with a trusted brother or sister about a shame, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. I've been studying AA a lot and, uh, over the last several years. In an AA gathering, when you walk in there, if you want to say something, I would say, my name is John, I'm an alcoholic, and everybody would respond, hi, John. In other words, you're welcome here. Even as you name your problem and your shame, as you stretch out your withered hand, I'm an alcoholic. My friend Mike says that in this fellowship, I love this, the worse your story, the warmer your welcome. Another friend, Kent Dunnington, has written wonderfully about uh, addiction and uh, healing. And he says, one of the secrets in AA is that they have discovered the recognition and public confession of inadequacy is itself a spiritual achievement that must be ritualized and celebrated. We think, sometimes even in the church, that uh, the, relevation, the, the, the recognition of personal inadequacy is something to be hidden. Their part of their power is they've discovered the recognition and public confession of inadequacy is a spiritual achievement and it must be ritualized and celebrated. So crossings, welcome to the celebration of personal inadequacy. My name is John. I'm a sinner. Let's try that one more time. Okay, my shame is on the line here, people. Very vulnerable moment. My name is John. I'm a sinner. See, that's the idea of the church. Is that we come and we bring. This ought to be the first place that we can disclose all of this stuff. And that's what Jesus is doing. Welcome to the fellowship of the withered hand. This man had no idea. It was his weakness that would enable him to be part of a story that we remembered and celebrated and inspire faith and hope 2,000 years later on the other side of the planet. Who could think up something like that? See, Lent is not an isolated little self-help project where I deny something for myself for some unknown reason. It's part of a glorious story. 35 years ago, those powerless church leaders in that dark little room faced a ruthless tyrant dictator who could crush them. Today he is gone, and his memory is a horror, and he forgot that it is true, even for those who summon armies and drop bombs, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, one day. He is gone, but Jesus' movement rolls on. Today we watch violence and cruelty and evil in Ukraine that maddens us in our inability to stop us, but there is yet a ruler over the affairs of earth who will not be mocked. And we walk through this season alongside of the man on the cross. 
And we walk in solidarity with all those who suffer in Ukraine. You know, almsgiving is a traditional part of Lenten practice. Nancy and I are directing some of ours to those who suffer in Ukraine. And I love that that's part of what Crossings is doing as well. I know your mission fund is working with vetted partners over there. Maybe that will be part of how God calls you to go through this season to give in that direction as well. I think, I think maybe another reason why this man's story went so public is that we are all of us really like him. It's just that some of us are better at hiding our withered hands. And for some reason, until we're driven to it by desperate need or whatever, uh, we're stuck with what only our own power can do. And we are not meant to live under our own power. You are not meant to manage your life. So God will make sure that some unmanageable things come your way. Maybe you're sitting next to your unmanageable thing right now. <laughs> That's why God said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Because it drives us to draw on another strength. Um, when I was finishing uh, grad school and trying to decide what to do with my life, I thought about maybe going into therapy or going into the ministry. But uh, I learned early on therapy was not my calling. But when I preached, I loved doing it. Um, but early on, I was preaching while I was still going through school, First Baptist Church at La Crescenta. And I was five or 10 minutes into the message and it wasn't going very well. And then I started to feel a little bit dizzy. And then the next thing I do, I, I, I fainted dead away in the middle of the sermon that I was preaching. It was awful and embarrassing. And uh, there was a lot going on in my life. It was time for finals. School year was almost over. I was going to be getting married. Nancy and I were going to live for a year overseas. So I thought, must be because there's so many stressful events. I was gone for a year, came back to school, came back to that church. The very next time I preached, I fainted dead away again. <laughs> and the worst part was, this was a Baptist church. It was not a charismatic church where you get credit for doing that kind of thing. And I thought, I don't know what to do because I feel like I love to preach. I feel so alive when I'm doing it. But you can't preach if you faint on a regular basis. It <laughs> makes people nervous. And the text that came to me was when Paul asked God, you know, would you take this thorn away? And God says, no, my, but my grace is sufficient for your weakness. And my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And that was 39 years ago. I still get that feeling sometimes, but God has kept me upright now for 39 years. So, what's your withered hand? What is the shame? What's the, what, what can you not do? You know, I used to think, I can kind of do my job. I can kind of grow an organization. I can kind of take care of my family. And I'm here to tell you, I can't. I can make my mind peaceful. I can make sadness or fear or anger. I can't. I'm not telling you that I used to not be able to, and then I learned the secret and I'll tell you, I can't. Those first three steps of AA are sometimes summarized. I can't. God can. I think I'll let him. I can't. God can. I think I'll let him.
ashes to ashes, earth to earth, dust to dust, but they don't get the last word. Tell you one last Lenten story. Um, this is from a woman named Marty Ensign. She and her husband worked at a metal clinic, medical clinic in Africa. And she told this story about 20 years ago. I just listened to it this last week at a conference where Marty spoke. And the leader of worship was a guy from this church named George. Skimstrap, is that the right pronunciation? Scrumpstead. Sorry. Uh, he was leading worship at this conference. And uh, Marty told about a friend of hers uh, named Benyoni. Uh, this is in Burundi. This is back when there was great tribal violence. And Benyoni is a name that means little bird. He was real musical. He was always singing and whistling and made his own guitar because he would never have been able to afford to buy one that had already been fashioned. And his people loved music, but they were not very musical. So they called him Little Bird. You could always hear him singing. He loved God, kind of person that people just naturally respond to, just kind of moves ahead in life. He went to a teacher's trainer's college and was voted student body president and then came back and uh, taught at a school near the village where he grew up and then was soon made basically the principal of that village. But this was at a time of great tribal violence and he was a Hutu, and his teachers were Hutus, and the Tutsis had the armies and the guns, and one day the soldiers came to that school, and they said to Benyoni, you must gather your teachers together, and we will take you to the other side of the hill so that the children cannot see what's about to happen. So 11 teachers and Benyoni, again, all friends of Marty's, start walking, and one of the teachers begins to sob and says to the soldiers, you must shoot me first because I could not stand to see you hurt my brothers. This actually happened not so many years ago. And Benyoni said to this teacher, no, 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 I am the leader. They will shoot me first. And you will watch and you will see what a glorious thing it is to go into the presence of Jesus. And then he turned to the lieutenant of those soldiers and he said, may I pray for you? And the soldiers were not sure what to do with that, but they said, all right. And Benioni's teacher friends were encouraged by this. They put great stock in Benioni's prayers. They thought he's gonna pray us out of this. And he began to pray. He did pray for them that they would have courage, that God would be with their families. But mostly he prayed for these soldiers. Who, who does this? This isn't our day. This isn't Bible times. He said, God, these soldiers are doing such a terrible thing. As you may know, a lot of those soldiers, they were just conscripted. I mean, it was part of the evil of what was going on. Many of them just kind of young boys. God, they're going to have to live with this horrible darkness. Would you send them someone to tell them about Jesus so they can know what it is to be forgiven? And they go to the hill. And then Benyoni asks the soldiers, could I sing a song for you? And no one had ever asked them that before. And they say, okay. And he began to sing an old, old song. We grew up with at my church. Out of my bondage, sadness, and night, Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. Into your freedom, gladness, and light, Jesus, I come to you. 
And then his 11 teachers began to be encouraged and they start singing with him on that hill with those soldiers. A second verse and then a third verse. And then the fourth verse, if you know that song, out of my fear and dread of the tomb, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come. Into your joy and pleasure, thine own, Jesus, I come to you. And then they finished singing and the soldiers picked up their rifles and shot and killed those 12 men on that hill. And Marty said, now you might be wondering, how do we know this story? And she says, well, it's because those soldiers went back to their base and they all went to a pub and got as drunk as they could, as fast as they could, except for the lieutenant who didn't drink a drop because he couldn't get what just happened out of his mind. So he waited till it was dark and he went to the Christian Literature Center and he met with an old Quaker woman who had been born in Africa. And he said, you must tell me about the God who would allow people to die this way because I want to know that God. And she told him about Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection. And he gave his life to Jesus and he was so excited he went back to his soldiers and he told them and, and some of them met Jesus and started Bible studies. And Marty said, I wish I could tell you the end of that story, but I can't. They shot the lieutenant too to shut him up. But, but the story just keeps spreading. People keep coming to Jesus. For the fellowship of the withered hand turns out to be the fellowship of the empty tomb. And evil cannot silence it. And death cannot stop it. And it is still receiving applicants. And I hope that you will be one. I hope to meet you there. Stretch out your hand. Would you pray together with me? God, I pray for everyone listening to these words. We all carry hurt and pain and fear and anger and weakness that we cannot solve. Would you help all of us, God, in this season step into the light of your love? Would you make crossings, God, in each place, in this room, people that are watching on a screen, wherever, the fellowship of the withered hand where we can be loved and healed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.